0: phone plans streams and standard definition programming subject to change fees terms and restrictions apply see cricket wireless.com for details it's monday june 13th 2022 i'm jackson bird today why is it so hard to remember details from books we've read and tv shows we've watched Plus, why is food cooked outside on an open flame so dang delicious? And vaccines for American children under the age of five may finally, finally be coming. Here is some cool stuff for your ride home. I love books. I have been an avid reader basically my whole life, and I like to think that I've learned a lot about the world and about myself through reading, but ask me a specific detail about just about any book I've ever read, and I will probably draw a blank. And I'm not alone. Many of us can't recall a lot of the details from books we've only read one time and not committed any further study to. I mean, heck, even books that I've heavily annotated and returned to repeatedly for research will still have plenty of sections to them that I don't really remember. Journalist Coco Khan is similarly one of those people. Expanding the forgetfulness to TV shows, movies, and more, Khan asked cognitive psychologist Dr. Sean Kong why so many of us struggle remember media that we've previously engaged with and kong says one problem is that we tend to read books or watch tv shows etc back to back so when we try to recall a particular book all the other information from other books gets in the way And for people who read a lot or watch a lot of TV in quick succession, say for their job, perhaps, or just generally consume a ton of media all day every day, as we all kind of do, it's even harder to recall particular details from particular sources because it's all jumbling together in our minds. Now, I am not a cognitive psychologist, but one thing that I have found to be a bit useful is never reading similar books back-to-back. If I just read a novel featuring time travel, I'll pick out a history book to read next, or maybe a solidly non-fiction memoir. The more different my next read, the less chance I'll confuse any of the plot lines or details in my memory. But back to the actual memory expert, Kong also adds, quote, There's also a new area of memory research that looks at our ability to remember stuff if we know the information is stored externally, for example, on a computer. The idea here is that our working memory, i.e. what we're focusing on at any given moment, has a limited capacity, and if we exceed that capacity by, say, paying attention to five things at once, we might try to offload some of that remembering to the external. And if we come to have an expectation that the information's always at our fingertips, tips, we might not encode the information in our mind very carefully when we do encounter it." He compares this to memorizing phone numbers back before we all had them in our cell phones. Because sure, a lot of us did have mental Rolodexes with an uncanny ability to recall all of our friends' and family's phone numbers by heart, but there were also a lot of phone numbers we wrote down in physical address books because it wasn't worth remembering them. And that act of writing the phone numbers down allowed our working memory to focus on other things, Kong says, and also means we were probably less likely to ever commit those numbers to memory. The idea that we commit so much less to memory these days because so much of it can be looked up online or stored in our devices is sometimes a bit frightening to me. But I don't think that we can give that up without also massively reducing the amount of information input that we're all subjected to every day. I recently started reading Chuck Klosterman's book The 90s, a sort of analysis and reckoning with the 1990s, and he made a really great point in the first chapter, writing, quote, The early 90s were a period when the obsession with popular culture exponentially increased without the aid of a mechanism that remembered everything automatically, end quote. That was the time when information overload first began to creep in, but we didn't yet have computers in our pockets that could fact-check every tiny detail. And I know in the age of misinformation, it feels like fact-checking is an outmoded habit, but think about how often you'll be in a conversation with friends, and you're all trying to remember the name of the actress who was in that movie or something. Maybe you'll debate it for a few minutes, and more than likely, one person will pull out their phone to check. Klosterman argues that the inability to do this in the 90s, when, again, we were being bombarded with so much more news and pop culture than we ever had before, is what has led to the so-called Mandela effect. The Mandela effect is, quoting Klosterman again, a collective delusion in which large swaths of the populace misremember a catalog of indiscriminate memories in the same way. End quote. It's named specifically for the surprisingly large amount of people who believe that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 1980s, instead of dying in 2013 after being released from prison, becoming the president of South Africa, and winning the Nobel Prize. Other popular Mandela effect mismemories include that Sinbad starred in a movie called Shazam, most likely mixed up with the Shaquille O'Neal movie Kazam, and that the Bernstein Bears used to be spelled Bernstein Bears. Klosterman points out that the most popular Mandela Effect claims revolve around news and pop culture from the late 80s to mid 90s, back when you could imagine friends sitting around trying to remember a specific detail about something and one or two people in the group saying, yeah, wasn't Sinbad the guy in that movie? What was it called? Shazam? And because there was no other way to check in that moment, everyone else agrees that sounds about right, and they form new memories using that basis of reality. So even though I sometimes hate that I now have this auxiliary brain I have to carry around with me to augment my working memory, I am grateful to have it as a tool in the age of constant stimulation and as I wade through the swamps of misinformation. And if you want to remember more details from what you read or watch or listen to, there are plenty of tried and true methods that do work. It's just that they all take time. They're things like taking active notes, reviewing those notes, writing summaries after every session of reading or watching or listening, and then rereading those summaries regularly. It's like designing a class for yourself for everything that you consume. And while that's occasionally fun, when it comes to everything that we consume on a daily basis, who has time for that? Especially when your pocket computer can do it all for you anyways. Tis the season for grillin' and chillin'. Cookouts, barbecues, grilling out, whatever you call it, people across the Northern Hemisphere are marking the start of summer by toting raw meat and vegetables into the backyard and searing them on top of a bonus appliance they purchased even though the one inside their kitchens is still perfectly functional. Why do we do this? Because it's delicious. And while I'm sure there are some people out there who don't care for foods cooked over an open flame or on a grill, science does support the delishosity of barbecued foods. Christine Nolan, an associate professor of chemistry at the University of Richmond, recently broke down exactly why barbecue tastes so good in a piece for The Conversation. And first, we do need to define barbecue, because my Texan upbringing would define it a bit differently than Professor Nolan. I have learned from living up north for 12 years that when someone up here invites you to a barbecue, they are rarely breaking out the smoker and serving up plates of ribs and brisket. They usually just mean that they're making some hamburgers, hot dogs, maybe some ears of corn on a charcoal grill. In Texas, we would call that a cookout. Barbecue, in our parlance, means a certain subset of cuisine. But for clarity's sake in this segment, I will acquiesce to Nolan's definition here so that we can proceed with the chemistry of barbecuing foods without confusion. So in this case, when I say barbecue, I am referring to the cooking of food over an open flame. That's it. Food cooked over an open flame. So why does food cooked over an open flame often taste so much better than food that we cook on stovetops? Well, according to Nolan, part of it is how the heat reaches the food. On a stovetop, food is usually heated through direct contact with the hot pan. And this happens when barbecuing on a grill as well, conduction warming the food directly from the hot grates. But you additionally warm the food through absorbing radiation from the flames of the grill below. So you get a nice mix of seared surfaces and cooked insides and a range of temperatures, which Nolan says releases a complex mixture of flavors and aromas. Cooking on an open flame can also often result in cooking at much higher temperatures. If you're placing the food directly above the flames, the grilling surface can be anywhere from 500 to 700 degrees Fahrenheit. Push the food to the side of the flames or raise it up a bit more, and you might be more in the 200 to 300 degree Fahrenheit range. And this heat really affects the taste. Here's how Nolan explains it. Quote, Cooking is the process of using high temperatures to drive chemical reactions that change food at a molecular level. When you cook meat at higher temperatures, like over direct heat on a barbecue, the first thing to happen is that the water near the meat's surface boils off. Once the surface is dry, the heat causes the proteins and sugars on the outside of the meat to undergo a reaction called the Maillard reaction. This reaction produces a complex mixture of molecules that make food taste more savory or meaty and adds depth to the scents and flavors. The reaction and the flavors it produces are influenced by many variables, including temperature and acidity, as well as the ingredients within any sauces, rubs, or marinades, end quote. It's not just the heat that makes food cooked over an open flame so tasty, though. Boiling a hot dog is never going to give you those mouthwatering scorch marks that you get when you throw it on a grill. And again, there's a variance of personal preference here, but a little bit of crispiness is often what people love about grilled foods. And that char is a result of non carbon atoms in the food being broken down after being exposed to the heat for a prolonged period of time. And in addition to the nice charred look and texture, another flavor factor you'll rarely achieve indoors is smokiness. There is a lot of smoke involved in every form of outdoor grilling, and that smoke gets absorbed into the food. Quoting again, Smoke is made up of gases, water vapor, and small, solid particles from the fuel. Burning wood breaks down molecules called lignins, and these turn into smaller organic molecules, including syringol and guaiacol, that are mainly responsible for the quintessential smoky flavor. When smoke comes in contact with food, the components of the smoke can get absorbed. Food is particularly good at taking on smoky flavors because it contains both fats and water. Each binds to different types of molecules. In chemistry terms, fats are nonpolar, meaning they have a weak electric charge, and easily grab other nonpolar molecules. Water is polar, meaning it has areas of positive charge and an area of negative charge, similar to a magnet, and is good at binding to other polar molecules. Some foods are better at absorbing smoky flavors than others, depending on their composition. End quote. If you like extra smoky flavors, Nolan says you can occasionally spray your food with water while you're barbecuing it. Although, as you probably know, both smoke and those tasty burnt bits of grilled goods can contain carcinogens. Not as much as regularly smoking cigarettes, but it's still something to be aware of. All good things in moderation. But whether you are having a proper barbecue with your family's famous dry rub or flipping some burgers on your gas grill, know that chemistry has your back in creating a delicious meal, even if your personal grilling skills might leave something to be desired. It's news that many parents have been waiting for for over a year, and it's news that they've been burned by before, so I'm still taking this with a grain of salt. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has posted analyses of both the Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines stating that they are safe and effective for children under 5 years old. Regulators still have to clear the shots from one or both companies, but if they do, children could begin getting vaccinated as soon as next week. Quoting PBS NewsHour... Pfizer's vaccine, given as a three-shot series, appeared 80% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID-19, although that calculation was based on just 10 cases diagnosed among study participants and before the super-contagious Omicron variant of the virus was dominant. The figure could change as Pfizer's study continues. Moderna's two dose series was only about 40 to 50 percent effective at preventing milder infections, though it was tested during the Omicron wave. Moderna has begun testing a booster for TOTS. Pfizer and its partner BioNTech plan to offer two shots three weeks apart, followed by a third at least two months later, each one-tenth the dose given to adults. Pfizer is currently the only company with a COVID-19 vaccine for older U.S. children. Moderna is seeking FDA clearance for two shots, each with a quarter of its adult dose given about four weeks apart, end quote." On Wednesday, a group of outside vaccine experts will convene to recommend how the FDA should officially rule on the vaccines for this age group. After the FDA makes a decision, the CDC will also weigh in with their recommendations. Children under five, representing 18 million children in the country, are the only American age group not eligible for COVID-19 vaccines currently. And while they do not catch COVID in high numbers, they do have higher rates of hospitalization and death compared to children aged 6 to 17. Although PBS points out that demand for the vaccine might not be as high as it would seem, only a third of kids aged 5 to 11 have received two doses of the vaccines despite being available since November, and in a recent survey, only one in five parents of kids under five said that they would get their kids vaccinated right away. Still, for the parents who have been waiting for vaccines to be approved, this will be hugely relieving news if it actually comes to fruition. At the Tony Awards last night, Jennifer Hudson became only the second black woman ever to earn an EGOT, that is, become a winner of an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. The first black woman to achieve EGOT status was Whoopi Goldberg back in 2002. Jennifer Hudson is also the youngest woman to ever become an EGOT winner and the third youngest person full stop. Hudson first won an Oscar for Dreamgirls in 2007 and then won two Grammys, first for a self-titled debut album in 2009 and again in 2017 for Best Musical Theater Album for The Color Purple. And then just last year, she won a Daytime Emmy for Best Interactive Media for the VR animated film Baba Yaga. Her Tony win last night was for her work as a co-producer on the new musical A Strange Loop, a high-concept show that finally premiered in April after being delayed due to the pandemic. The show is about a black queer writer writing a musical about a black queer writer writing a musical about a black queer writer and on and on you get the title A Strange Loop now. The show also won Best Musical at the Tonys last night and had previously won a Pulitzer Prize during its off-Broadway run in 2020. In other words, it is clearly the show to see now. And Jennifer Hudson has become even more of a force to be reckoned with. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.